Hey everyone, welcome back to Here in Apologetics. So pumped to join us today to have Dr. Holly Ordway. Um, she's a Cardinal Francis George Fellow of Faith and Culture for the Word on Fire Institute. She's also a visiting professor of apologetics at Houston Christian University, um, also formerly known as Houston Baptist University. Uh, and her work primarily is on the work of J.R. Tolkien, J.R.R. Tolkien, on imaginative and literary apologetics and things along these lines. Um, and she's also the author of Tolkien's Middle Earth, uh, to- I cannot speak, <laughs> Tolkien's Modern Reading, The Middle Earth Beyond the Ages, um, per- published with Words on Fire Academic. Holly, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you? I'm doing very well, thanks. How are you? I'm excited for this conversation. It's been an interesting day, so I'm really excited to uh, look at this topic with you, looking at the work of J.R.R. Tolkien, and with me kind of looking at like his Christian roots and the issues he addressed and trying to really dive into like who this J.R.R. Tolkien guy is. So yeah, I'm super excited. All right. All right. So maybe to start off, do you want to just give like a very brief like biographical sketch of who J.R.R. Tolkien is in case people aren't familiar, though I'm sure a lot of them are, and then we'll get into uh, today's discussion. Absolutely. So for most most people, um, probably today know Tolkien from the films that have been made from The Lord of the Rings. Um, so Lord of the Rings is his major work. Um, Peter Jackson did these three quite really very excellent um, films from it. And these, of course, came from his novel, uh, The Lord of the Rings. And he's also the author of The Hobbits, which came before The Lord of the Rings and is a, a kind of prequel. And uh, so that's that's the main gist of it. He's famous for those things. But in fact, he was professionally a professor of English language and literature at Oxford University in, in England, uh, where he lived. He lived in Oxford for most of his life. And he had quite a dramatic early life. Uh, he was actually born in South Africa um, to English parents. Um, and while he and his mother and younger brother were in England, um, you know, kind of in a, a vac- visit home, his father died unexpectedly when he was um, only three years old. And then uh, he, his mother brought him and his brother up. Um, she became a Catholic and then was cut off by her family and caused, you know, a lot of, you know, difficulties with the family. Um, And then she died when Tolkien was only 12. Um, And so then he was brought up for the rest of his his boyhood um, by his guardian, Father Francis Morgan, a a Catholic priest who looked after Tolkien and his brother and became a true second father um, to the boys um, and and, uh, a really beloved figure. And then Tolkien went off to Oxford University, earned his degree just in time to enter into the cataclysm of the First World War, um, where he actually fought um, in the trenches and suffered from trench fever and became very, very sick, um, affected his health permanently. Uh, He suffered really the rest of his life. And right before he had um, gone off to war, he had gotten married to the love of his life. Um, Her name was Edith. Um, And when they reunited, they ended up um, having four children and uh, living first in, uh, in Northern England and then moving to, to Oxford, um, where one day he wrote on a piece of paper as he was grading papers, in a hole in the ground there lived a hobbit. Um, and that was the origin of that story, which eventually led to uh, the Lord of the Rings. So he's a really interesting figure, um, faithful Christian, um, who went through real difficulties in his life. He was an orphan. Um, he suffered poverty as a, as a boy. Um, he, he was 
you know, in the front lines of, uh, of warfare in the horrific uh, World War I. So he really experienced a lot of suffering um, firsthand. And so that's something we can touch on later, the way that he brings this into, uh, into his work. But I just think it's really interesting to see the way that this, you see an, an author's name on a, on a book cover, you see Lord of the Rings, J.R.R. Tolkien, and you might not realize here is somebody who suffered, who loved, who was a family man um, and, and a friend, uh, and just a really all around interesting guy. Yeah, I love um, how you sketched this out, Holly, because like when I was thinking about this conversation, um, I, I was kind of thinking it'd be cool to like look at like exactly how you talked about um, like a lot of times like we see the Lord of the Rings like the book or like the movie it's like oh it's based off J.R.R. Tolkien and we just don't really think about like this whole story of like this person like it's just not some like random robot who puts together their story but, like a human being who had life experiences like the First World War that you're talking about here they're gonna play super much like into like his whole work and what he did and his Christian worldview and how that's gonna like play out into his work um, so yeah I think that's super helpful like as we kind of get into this. So do you have any like relevant like information you think that could be helpful for people as we kind of like dive into this and like looking at um, like kind of like what's underpinning almost like the work that we see on the shelves today and in the, on the big screen? Oh, well, this is a big question. Um, and I will give a little bit of a, of a preview to the Tolkien fans in your, uh, in your audience. Um, I have just finished the manuscript of a new book that will be coming out next year. And the book is called Tolkien's Faith, a spiritual biography. Uh, and that will go into depth into really his life as a Christian and and that whole that whole narrative of his faith and in the growing and developing of it and how it sustained him throughout his his whole life um, and and how he experienced doubts and difficulties too. That's came out next year, so that's a little bit of a of a heads up on that. Now to answer your specific question much more briefly, because we have only a short time and not a whole book, um, there's a quote that um, is is quite famous, Tolkien said regarding the Lord of the Rings, he said that the story is a fundamentally religious and Catholic work, unconsciously at first, but consciously in the revision. And that is why, he says, he cut out all of the overt religious elements. And there's a couple of really important points about this. One is that he says it's fundamentally religious. Um, and the other is that it's fundamentally religious and therefore he cuts out the religious bits, which may seem like a contradiction, but it's actually not. Um, so just to come at first on the first bit, when he talks about it being fundamentally religious and Catholic, that word fundamental is really essential because that means the underpinnings. Um, it's not an allegory of the gospels. He's not preaching. He's very clear about that. It's not an allegory. He's not trying to teach Christianity to you through reading it. But because he is Christian, that's his worldview. He's a deeply devout Christian. Um, and, and he really, you know, he knew his faith. You know, he had faced suffering. He had faced doubt. He hadn't, it wasn't just an easy, like, oh yeah, I was raised in the faith. And so therefore, you know, I am Christian. He really owned it. For himself, it infuses all of his work because that's that's how he understands reality. So the themes of good and evil and the way that the world works, these things are fundamentally Christian. Um, but he doesn't put in any overt religion in the stories. And 
you know, that's a theme I, I discuss a little bit in Tolkien's Modern Reading, um, which is a book that explores the way that he crafted his world, the way that he responded to other, other books that he read um, of modern literature. And there were other, other authors who were more direct and more overt in their Christianity, and he wasn't. That kind of wasn't his style. But also I think he wanted, he wanted it to stay subtle because he wanted it to be just flavoring and infusing his world and not something that you could say, oh, well, you know, they're, yeah, that's, that's just what the characters do. They worship or whatnot. And he takes out all the overt elements so that the, just the underpinnings um, are what sustain the, the whole work. Hmm. So like, if I'm understanding, did Tolkien like have when he's writing like Lord of the Rings, was it more like, like more preaching in like a first draft or like what exactly are you trying to um like i'm just trying to grasp what you're saying here well he the the point is that he says it was um unconsciously christian unconsciously christian when he wrote it um so when he wrote the first draft it was christian in its in its themes in its imagery because he's christian so that's why he says mm -hmm. it's fundamentally religious and catholic work unconsciously in the drafting Okay. That's just how it comes out. But then having written it as a devout Christian, he says then consciously in the revision, he's looking to see how can I make sure the Christian things are presented well? And mm. that's why he cuts out the overt elements because he thinks they're going to get in the way because he wants mm. the truth of the, his Christian themes to be coming out, but implicitly, quietly, subtly, he wants you to be able to enjoy the story without noticing um, the religious elements, but then that when you do notice them, you say, oh, that's, that's really meaningful. So it's a really interesting, complex mix where it's unconsciously Christian at first because he is Christian, um, and then it's deliberately Christian because he's polishing it up to make it work effectively, but he's doing it to be subtle. He doesn't, he doesn't want to be preaching. He's taking out anything that might possibly sound like preaching. Mm. Okay. Yeah. I think that's super helpful. So thanks for that, Holly. So I'd be curious, uh, you mentioned a little bit talking about um, like, like the books that shape Tolkien. Do you want to talk a little bit like about like, what are like maybe like the books or like the different life experiences that are really going to like help like form Tolkien is like, I'm kind of seeing this like conversation as we're going to build it up into the Lord of the Rings and talking about like what's going on there. So like as we're building into that before the book, like what are these some of these experiences or books or whatnot that are really shaping him as a human being? Well, one of the major influences um, is his interest in languages. Um, that's something that he identifies right away um, from a boy. He loved learning different languages. Um, when he discovered Finnish, he he felt like he was intoxicated. This was just so amazing. He would learn he would learn new languages just because they were exciting. He liked the sound of them. Um, and then when he went to Oxford to, to study, um, he ended up studying what's called philology, which is the study of how languages develop because languages change over time. I um, mean, you know, even within English, old English is so different from modern English that you have to translate it to understand it. And then you get to you know, middle English, the Chaucer. And again, most people have to have it translated in order to understand it. And then we get to, to Shakespeare, for instance, who's actually a modern English, but he sounds still different because this is the age of you know, the Elizabethan era. So, so Tolkien became an expert, a world-class expert in the way languages work. 
Um, and then he began to invent his own languages. Um, he invented all these Elvish languages. And then he wanted to invent a world for his, his Elvish speakers to live in. So he invents this whole world of Middle Earth. Um, and then from that stem, all of these stories. So that's one of the influences of, of Tolkien, this, this fascination with language, with words, with how they work. And he also is professionally um, a medievalist. So he's interested in medieval literature um, and language. And medieval literature is just fascinating um, field. So lots of great literature there. The sagas, um, also like, you know, the Norse, the epics, is, you know, dragons, Sigurd and the dragon and all those, those epic stories. He has that to draw on. Um, and then, and, and these are the parts that most people know about, but then he also was reading a lot of modern literature, just the contemporary fiction and poetry that was being written, you know, in his day, he really enjoyed science fiction, for instance. Um, he thought science fiction was a really interesting genre. He, he, he was a fan of Isaac Asimov, for instance. Um, you know, he really found this interesting. And so all of these influences together are things he drew on as he's crafting The Lord of the Rings, The Hobbit, The Silmarillion. Um, so that's, we have this kind of medieval, you know, ancient flavor in The Lord of the Rings. Um, it feels, I mean, it's set in a, in a, ancient time and a prehistoric time, but because he was also interested in modern culture, he was interested in technology. He was interested in the current events of the day. He read the newspaper. He paid attention to these things. He ends up being able to kind of bridge the ancient and the modern um, because he understands kind of both languages. He's not just writing something that's set in the past. He's writing something that's set in a kind of medieval flavored past that's totally relevant to people in the 20th century and the 21st century. Mm. So we have one of the things that's going to shape Tolkien then is like this like deep understanding for like the past, you're talking about like he can go back and understand the ancient world, but then he's not just kind of like lost in the books. He's also very like inept and like under like really understands the modern world and everything that's happening in society. This is like living and breathing. Exactly. Um, because there are authors um, whom I read as I was doing my research who actually are just stuck in the past. They're trying to recreate, you know, a medieval, a medieval setting. And, you know, the stories are, are, are kind of quaint. They're, you know, they, they have their entertainment value, but they're not really, they're really curiosities now. Why is it that Tolkien's work, you know, although it's set in the past, um, although he uses medieval themes, he was a medievalist. Why is it still so engaging for us today? Well, it's because he was a modern man and he was engaging with the modern world and he was able to draw these things and make them relevant. I mean, take, for instance, the theme, you know, the themes of the Lord of the Rings. We kind of take for granted now, you know, the, the Lord of the Rings is, is all about, you know, this magic ring. Now, magic rings are very common in fantasy stories and in myths, but the really distinctive thing about this magic ring is that in the Lord of the Rings, the whole point of the story is to get rid of it. They're trying to destroy it. They don't want to use it. And that's the opposite of, of every other magic ring story ever. Um, and mm -hmm. this is Tolkien's modern conception because he, he fought in the first world war. He saw the development of the second world war building up, you know, and, and indeed happening as he was writing the Lord of the Rings, he knew that power 
is a huge problem in the modern day. And with technology, the machine, as he calls it, it can be used well, but it can also be used very, very badly. It can be used to control. It can be used for totalitarian purposes. And he's very aware of this. And so the, the whole arc of the Lord of the Rings, where they're trying to destroy the, the engine of power, is totally modern. That is a theme that no medieval writer would ever have, have done because we live in a different era. And he knew that. And he writes a story that reflects our modern issues. Mm. That's super helpful. And like thinking about the ring um, and the Lord of the Rings, like as, as like the idea of power and like showing like, like, hey, power can be like a very like dangerous thing. It's something that like, um, yeah, I, I think that's super helpful in just sketching out like what Tolkien's trying to do and like thinking about him like in the context of um, going through the First World War and seeing the like the beginning of the second, like showing like, hey, power, like this can cause like horrific suffering as well if used poorly, which I think the ring does a great job of symbolizing. And I think you get more appreciation for it when you see it in the context of like who, where he is and what he's doing. So, yeah. So I wonder then thinking about this, like, you talked about it way in the beginning and it kind of got my attention. Um, like how did the first world war shape, shape up like Tolkien and his life and like how would it impact like the Lord of the Rings and what he did? Well, it had, a, it had a huge, it had a huge impact. Um, and I would say any reader, any listener to your, your podcast is interested in this. There's a really good book um, on this called Tolkien and the great war by John Garth. That's all about Tolkien's experience um, in the first world war. Excellent book. I highly recommend it. Um, so there's a couple of, of things that really come out of that. One is that he faces suffering really directly. I mean, we already seen from my biographical sketch that he knew suffering personally. He was an orphan by the age of 12. Um, so we know that. But when he went and fought in the Great War, um, I mean, the death toll was horrific, especially among officers. You know, he went out there knowing that it was more likely than not that he would get killed. All of his close friends um, were killed in the war. Like his, you know, he, he had, of, the, of his friend group, really only one of them survived. Um, so he had his closest friends were killed in the war. He himself, you know, saw suffering firsthand. And the First World War was the first, well, it was the first worldwide war. It was also the first war that made use of um, mechanized um, things like you know machine guns. That was the first time they had been used in a widespread widespread way. Um, people were not prepared for the kind of stalemate over the trenches where you know in the Battle of the Somme, tens of thousands of people, tens of thousands of men were just slaughtered in a single day. Um, it was the first time a chemical warfare was used um, ever in the history of warfare. Um, poison gas, mustard gas, um, just absolutely nightmarish um, war situation, unlike anything that the world had ever known. And I think we see this influencing him in a couple of ways. One of them is that, you know, as a Christian, he had to face up to how does God permit this? How can the suffering be possible? Um, this is something I explore in the book that's coming out next year, um, the way that his faith is, is shaped through the war. Um, and one of the themes we can see unfolding in his work is the importance of, of personal choices. You know, you know, God does not want us to slaughter each other by the tens of thousands. He gives mm -hmm. us free will 
and then we abuse it. Um, our choices, our choices matter. Um, our choices lead to these these things. Um, so that's that's one impact of it. And then another is we have touched on it a little bit already. Um, is that he really sees the way that power um, and technology can have just devastating effects. Um, you know, the, the mechanization of the war, it, I mean, it literally destroyed the landscape. Um, it took, you know, generations before really the, the, those territories of, of France became, you know, livable again. It was a, a nightmarish landscape. And we see that, for instance, um, I think in something like Mordor, you know, the pits and the, the bubbling, nasty, oozing oil and things like that. Well, he saw that. That was, that was the front lines. Those are the trenches. Um, so I think we see that too incorporated into, into his work. Mm, yeah, it's super helpful. So, and actually one more thing, I just thought yeah, of yeah. Um, the, the character of Sam Gamgee, who's really the hero of the Lord of the Rings, he actually commented as well that that character had a lot of, drew a lot on the, fig, on, on the figure of um, what's called his Batman, his, uh, his assistant, um, you know, who was a, who was a, um, a not, not an officer, but would help him, you know, um, sort of his, his well, servant isn't quite the right word, sort of assistant, his subordinate. Um, and he saw that in, in the troops, the, the ordinary enlisted, enlisted man, that's what I was looking for, the ordinary enlisted men um, of the British Army, he had such a respect for them um, and just their, their moral strength, their, their humility, um, and in particular, the one that, that he worked with. Um, and he brings a lot of that into the character of Sam, um, who really is the hero of Lord of the Rings. So Sam Sam's kind of drawing on then a little bit of like like the strength of the common infantryman like that he saw in the in the British Army. Absolutely, mm, that's super cool. What else is there? Um, like is we're building like a biographical sketch of like Tolkien. Like he comes out of the World War. Um, then like what's next for him? And like how is that going to kind of build into like the Lord of the Rings and the work that he's doing? Well, he um, he worked for a time actually for the Oxford English Dictionary. Um, and so he used to joke um, later on, like when someone questioned, you know, his spelling, well, I wrote the dictionary. So I know, <laughs> well, he didn't write the dictionary, um, but uh, he worked on it. Um, and so he, he did a lot of the entries for the W's. So words like walrus and waistcoat, um, he worked on, uh, on those entries. Um, so you know, when you think of a walrus, you can think of Tolkien working at that. Um, um, and then from there, he got his first teaching job at Leeds University, um, where he taught for a couple of years. And then he came back to Oxford. And there he was for the rest of his life. So in that sense, outwardly uneventful, um, but internally, personally, very eventful. Um, he was married. He had four children. And it was, of course, at Oxford that he met C.S. Lewis, who became his great friend and, you know, fellow member of the Inklings group, the group of writers um, who met uh, usually weekly or twice weekly, um, shared each other's writings, read their writings to each other, were just in general friends and encouragers. And, uh, and because of that friendship, you know, Lewis encouraged Tolkien to finish The Lord of the Rings because he was a terrible perfectionist. He might never have finished it. And Tolkien also encouraged Lewis um, in his writings. And so we have, you know, and also, even more significantly, Tolkien helped Lewis to become a Christian. Because when they first met, um, Lewis was not yet a Christian. Um, and Tolkien's conversations with him were part of what helped him 
to realize that Christianity is true and to and to become you know one of the greatest apologists of the of the 20th century. Mm. That's super helpful. So thanks for that, Holly. So one one of the things I'm curious about then is like it's like how does the popular portrayal of Tolkien differ um, than like from what you've uncovered in your work? So like we have this idea, like we see the guy. Um, you wrote the Lord of the Rings and like you're very well like you understand a lot of his like biographical sketch and who he was and like what he believed like what are some of like the big differences that you think you've uncovered like through through your work that you've seen well I think the the major um, misconception people have about him which I talk about in um, Tolkien's modern reading is that he was just stuck in the past that you know we've already talked about this a little bit this idea that he was only interested in the past he was kind of nostalgic that he hated everything modern uh, and that's simply not true. And that was the major discovery of, of Tolkien's modern reading. Um, and that is a big shift in how we look at him and to realize, yes, he did he did care about the past a great deal. He was very interested in, he loved medieval literature and culture, all that, absolutely. But he wasn't only looking backwards. He was also very engaged with the modern day. And that really is the the big insights that I wanted to bring forward um, in that book. Mm. So what do you look at to show that like Tolkien, like he isn't stuck in the past, but like, like there is a lot of engagement with the present. Like, where do you see that? Well, I mean, we see that in a lot of, you know, his interviews, he, he talks, um, he mentions, for instance, that he, he um, read the newspaper. In fact, he says he takes three newspapers, um, gets three newspapers uh, and reads them. And he even said in an interview, there was an interviewer who basically was trying to get him to say that he didn't care about current events because I think this interviewer thought, well, of course, you know, oh, press Tolkien, of course you don't care about that stuff. And Tolkien says, no, no, no. And he's very emphatic in this interview. He says, no, I take a great interest in what's going on at the university, at you know the, the city level, in the country and worldwide. He makes a point of all those levels. He's interested in the news. One of the things um, that I turned up in my research is that um, in the 1940s, he, you know, he co-signed a, a letter of protest to um, the Times newspaper um, about a Hungarian cardinal who was um, being imprisoned um, by Soviet forces. And this was a violation of religious liberty. Um, and he, pro he, he protests this. Um, so he's up to date on what's going on in the world, and he's willing to put his name to an editorial letter um, that says, hey, we're protesting this abuse of religious freedom. So that's that's the mark of somebody who is engaged with what's going on in the world. Um, and then mm. just in tracing his, uh, his reading, because I set out to find as much as possible to know for sure what books he read of, of contemporary, of, of modern literature. And I mean, he read, read loads of things. You know, he read he read authors who were not Christians. He read um, he enjoyed, you know, even sort of modernist stuff like James Joyce and Gertrude Stein. Like he he read all sorts of different things um, and he, he was interested in that. And that, again, to me, just is, is evidence that that he was interested in the modern world. He didn't just say, oh, that modern stuff. That's no that's that's no good. I'm gonna, just going to read the old books again. He, he loved his old book, mm. but he was also reading. Uh, modern fiction. Mm. Yeah, that's super helpful. Um, so one of the things then, Holly, that I think that would be great to talk about here is like, 
like what are some of these modern issues that Tolkien's looking at in his work? Um, I love like the example you talked about already of like the ring symbolizing power and how Tolkien saw like power is something that like that's something that's very dangerous, especially when it's in the wrong hands. Um, but, like what else is like Tolkien addressing like in his work that is like kind of related to issues in society that he saw? Well, one of the things that he he said himself was a theme of the Lord of the Rings is uh, death. Death is a is a huge theme. Death and the desire for deathlessness. And one of the ways that he explores this is that he has he has human beings um, who are mortal. You know, they live, they die, um, and he has the elves who are immortal, in the sense that they can be they can die, they can be killed, but if if they're left to themselves. They, they just live indefinitely. They, they live as long as the created order exists. And so he uses this idea of these elves who are fascinated by the idea of death because they don't have it. Um, so what is it that, that humans have that, that we don't have? And there is a, you know, the background sort of vague legend that, that God, um, who's called Eru Iluvatar in the, in the Silmarillion, that God has given death to human beings as a kind of gift. And they don't really understand it because this is set in a pre-Christian era. They don't really understand what that's all about. But this whole idea of there being death as a passage to something um, is fascinating to the elves. And we see this in the stories of the Silmarillion. There are a number of characters who are elves who have the opportunity to choose to set aside their immortality and, and become mortal. And by the way, for the, the readers who may not, your viewers who may not realize what I'm talking about, um, there's Lord of the Rings. That's the one everyone knows about. And then there's the Silmarillion, which is the set of kind of mythology, the, the, the legends of Middle Earth, we would, we would say. Um, they're very different in tone. They, they kind of have an Old Testament kind of flavor to some of them, um, a sort of higher, higher language. Um, but this is the, the legends that are they're referred to in The Lord of the Rings. They're actually told in the Silmarillion. So one of these, for instance, is the story of Beren and Luthien. Um, Beren is a, is a human, um, human man. And Luthien is an elvish princess. And they meet, they fall in love. Um, but Luthien's father, he is not impressed. He says, no, you cannot marry my daughter unless you bring me one of the Silmarils, one of the, the holy jewels that happened at that moment to be in the possession of the evil Melkor, um, who has them in his, in his terrible kingdom in the north. And so it seems like, well, that's that. He can't marry Luthien. But Baron is not stopped so easily. He goes after um, the Silmaril. Um, he's captured and Luthien rescues him. So this is a great example of Tolkien giving us a really strong female character because Luthien, she realizes that her beloved has been captured by, you know, by um, uh, Morgoth, uh, Melkor, same guy, different names. And she goes and she rescues him. Um, and then together they manage to steal one of the Silmarils um, and, and take it back. Um, other complications ensue. Um, but eventually, um, Baron, he gets killed. Um, and Luthien is so devastated, um, which she's grieving, that this figure, Mandos, he's one of the sort of archangelic figures. Um, he says, okay, um, I will send, I will send Baron back. Um, but you can, and you can choose to be mortal with him if you want to. And she does. 
So she chooses to give up her elvish immortality so that she can live out her life with the with uh, with Baron when he's returned. And then they live out their life and then eventually they they have a child and then they die for real this time. So this whole story of Baron Luthien is actually alluded to in Lord of the Rings. Uh, we, we see it come up in there. It's a, it's a legend. It's told in full um, elsewhere. But this is one of the one of the ways that Tolkien is kind of getting at love. Um, and he identified himself with Baron and his wife, Edith, with Luthien. And in fact, those two names are on their gravestone, um, Baron and Luthien. Um, so it has, again, a biographical connection, which is, is pretty cool. But this whole idea that Luthien, she's willing to give up her immortality for the gift of death. Um, and this is kind of counterintuitive because you would think, how is that a gift? Wouldn't you mm -hmm. want to wouldn't you want to have the immortality? But we coming back again to Tolkien's fundamentally Christian worldview, um, death is not the end. Death is not the worst thing that can happen to us. Death is the is the entryway into eternal life. Um, and so he's exploring this in, in a pre-Christian setting. So it's it's done, you know, thematically. But there's that idea of like, oh, what if we thought about death as a gift? That's that's a really interesting way of thinking about it. It challenges some of our assumptions. Um, like, no, death is not the worst thing. Death is not actually the end end of our earthly life, but not the, not the end per se. Mm -hmm. So the elves are kind of drawing out that, that idea that Tolkien's kind of bringing up and saying, like asking like the modern reader, like what, like what if death isn't like necessarily like a bad thing? What if it's like a gift? Cause like immortality, like is a bad thing. I mean, obviously like he's a Christian and he's going to say like heavenly existence is like the perfect thing. Well, like, like death in this life, like that's not a bad thing to, to die here. Yeah. And he's also helping us think through what do we even understand by immortality? Because the immortality of, 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 of a soul, um, you know, in the, our Christian understanding is that, you know, our souls are immortal. Um, they, they aren't going to, to end with our bodily deaths. And then we will have in, you know, in the new heavens and the new earth, we will have resurrection bodies, we'll have bodies again. And so we will have then a true immortality that will have no ending. Um, that is true immortality. What Tolkien's envisioning for his elves is what we might call conditional immortality. They live as long as the created order endures, which might be a million years, but the earth is eventually going to get swallowed up when the sun goes supernova. You know, So even if today we could have some sort of advanced technology that preserved us physically so that we lived for a million years, we would still not be immortal in the real sense. We would have a kind of elven longevity of life, but we wouldn't actually be immortal. And Tolkien kind of gets at this with some of his characters um, who have this great longevity, but they get awfully tired. You know, they're just it's just the same old thing. They just they're they're tired, they're weary. So just extension of life is not true immortality. In real immortality in the Christian understanding is going to be fullness of life that continues. And that's very, very different from just continuing onward. Mm -hmm. um, 
And that's something I should- I love that distinction. Yeah, and that's something Tolkien explores with the fact that the, the ring, this dangerous one ring, if someone keeps it, their life is extended. We see it in Gollum and we see it in Bilbo. Um, and Gollum has had it for who knows how many thousand years. And he's this wrinkled, withered, you know, husk of a being who has left nothing except this sort of addiction to the ring. So he's had his life extended all right, but it wasn't a very good life. Um, it wasn't any richness. It was just stretching out. And we see the same thing with Bilbo, who has had the ring for a long time. He eventually passes it on to Frodo, um, manages to do that. But he's so tired by the end. And he says, oh, I feel kind of stretched because he has had his lifespan extended unnaturally by the power of the ring. But it's not a, it's not an addition to his life. It's not fullness of life. He just has the same life, just kind of stretched really thin. And that's not really very nice. So again, he gives us with the hobbits and the elves, he gives us two different ways of thinking about what does it just mean to just have a long life or an artificially extended life as opposed to real immortality and real fullness of life, which is what we as Christians are, are hoping for. Mm. I love that um, kind of idea of the extension versus like the fullness of life. Um, I think it's helpful for Christians, like like the idea of the, like in our life, like we're not just trying to like, um, like follow Jesus, but like we're not doing that just to like get life extended, but to like, like have a full life, a fulfilled life. Um, and like, follow, like being a Christian, like that is where it, it matters is like having that fullness of life, like walking with God, and things like that. I think it's super helpful. And it's cool how Tolkien kind of draws that out as well. So yeah, yeah, I think it's just awesome. And I think that's a really important thing, you know, to be reflecting on in the modern day again. Um, and I think this is part of the reason that Tolkien's so interested in this, because, you know, we have all these great ways to improve our health um, and extend our lives, which are good. It's good that we have cures for diseases. It's good that we have better nutrition. All these things are blessings. Um, but we can get so hung up on that that we then become obsessed with, I have to have perfect health forever. Um, I can't face death at all. Um, I think people today tend to be very afraid of dying. They're, they're afraid of sickness. They're afraid of dying. Um, and it's almost unimaginable to accept being weak, being frail. Um, but that's actually part of the Christian vision. It's like, okay, good health is a blessing, but to be weak and to be sick is, you know, that too is part of our, our experience. And it isn't something we need to be afraid of um, because this mm -hmm. is, this is part of being with the Lord. We offer up our sufferings. Um, we try to, you know, we try to um, live graciously and, and gracefully and with, with love through whatever sufferings that we have, knowing that we eventually are going to die. Every one of us is going to die. We cannot avoid that. No matter how, you know, how, how much we fight against it, we're all going to die. Um, but do we go into that gracefully accepting it then as the next step? Or do we kind of kick and scream and refuse to prepare spiritually because we just don't even want to think about it? Um, and I think this idea of, of death as a gift that Tolkien is reflecting on, I think can help us you maybe maybe start to think about it with a little bit little bit less absolute terror. Death is not the worst thing. Um, death is the next step onward, 
to the true fullness of life. Mm. Yeah, I think that's that's super cool. So, yeah, I'd love to dwell on that, but we still only have about 15 more minutes or so. So, like, what else, like, with the regards to, like, the Christian root? Like, in the Lord of the Rings, like, how do you see, like, Tolkien's Christian roots kind of coming out? Well, I think one of the ways we see that is that he has a, a, a recurring theme about the importance of pity and mercy um, in the in the books. And, you know, just keep an eye on this. Next time you read through The Lord of the Rings, I do encourage you to read, read the book. Um, it, so it's a little bit of a slow start, um, but it's worth persisting because there's so much depth of characterization um, that just can't happen in the films because even the extended editions of the films only have so much time. And you really see those, those characters develop much more fully um, in, in the book. And one of the really important recurring themes is pity, compassion. So in The Hobbit, um, the prequel to The Lord of the Rings, um, Bilbo finds the ring. Um, he, he, you know, he's, he's getting away and he has the opportunity to kill Gollum because Gollum is, is trying to get the ring back. And he, he, um, he has the opportunity. He's wearing the ring. He's invisible. He could have killed Gollum, but he doesn't. He has pity in him and he just, he just leaves instead. Um, and then later on, um, Frodo in the Lord of the Rings, Frodo is talking about Gollum with, with Gandalf, um, the wizard Gandalf. And uh, he's worried because Gollum is now recognized as quite a dangerous figure. He's trying to get the ring back. Um, he, he'd kill Frodo if he can. And um, Frodo says, oh, it's a pity that Bilbo didn't kill him when he had the chance. Um, and he's using pity in the sense of, oh, it's, it's, wouldn't it have been better if he just you know, killed him then. And Gandalf says, pity? It was pity, in the sense of compassion, that stayed his hand. And it's because he took the ring in that way, without an act of violence, that Bilbo was able to hold on to this very dangerous ring and not be corrupted by it. Um, mm -hmm. So he makes the point that this, this act of pity had this selfless act, um, had a positive effect on Bilbo. And then as the story unfolds, it turns out that then later Frodo has pity on Gollum. And then it is only through Gollum that the quest is fulfilled. Because at the end, you know, Frodo's at Mount Doom. He's ready to throw the ring in. And he says, no, I will not do it. Because Frodo has carried the ring for so long that his will is broken. And at the very end, Frodo fails in the quest. We have to remember that he fails. He has he has done everything he could, but the task was too much for him, and his will is broken. The ring masters him, and he says, "No, I'm going to claim the ring for myself." And he puts it on, but Gollum comes rushing up, trying to steal the ring, bites off his finger with the ring on it, and falls by accident into the into the fires of Mount Doom, and therefore the quest is successful. And this is, this is the workings of providence. This is part of the Christian underpinning of the story. It all works in story terms. Gollum has been following him. You know, it, it's perfectly logical in story terms. But underlying the whole thing is Tolkien's understanding. This is God at work. Bilbo was merciful. Frodo was merciful. Sam was merciful. And because they showed mercy... Mercy was shown to them. Um, 
And this really, it's, it's, he even says it's an enactment of the Lord's prayer. This is what's happening in there. You know, forgive, you know, we ask in the Lord's prayer, forgive me my trespasses as I forgive those who are trespassed against me. Well, Frodo has forgiven Gollum and then he ends up having his own trespass, his own sin forgiven um, because of that. So it's kind of that working out of, of providence. It's because of his mercy towards somebody who doesn't deserve it because Gollum does not deserve mercy. That's kind of the point. But he, he, he pities him, he acts in mercy. And because of that, in God's economy, the quest is fulfilled. He is saved, Middle Earth is saved. Um, and all of it working out because of mercy. And I, that's one of the fundamental Christian themes that we see in the Lord of the Rings. Mm, that's super cool. Thanks for that, Holly. Um, as we come towards like an end, anything else you want to share with regards to like, like the themes or the roots or anything like that of like what Tolkien's doing in the Lord of the Rings? Ah, well, I would just encourage all of your all of your audience to, you know, to read to read Lord of the Rings uh, for themselves. Um, it's a great book. The Hobbit is also a great book. We haven't talked about that, but there's also so much, just so much beautiful stuff going on in The Hobbit. So maybe, especially if you've maybe watched the movies, um, but you haven't read the books, go read The Hobbit first. Read The Hobbit, great book. Um, it starts out as a lighthearted children's book and it gets more and more serious as the book progresses. Um, and it's really quite quite moving, I think, and powerful. Um, and nothing, it's nothing like the films, the Hobbit films. We, we, we just won't even go there. Um, book is excellent. <laughs> um, and then the Peter Jackson films, I thought they're really good. I like them. Um, they're well done, but they don't capture the full range of Tolkien's vision. So if you enjoyed them, great. Now go, go actually read the Lord of the Rings, give yourself time. It's a, it's a big, thick book. Um, but it's really worth it's worth spending the time with it and journeying with it. Um, and if you're attentive to these underlying themes, and if you're, for instance, looking for the way that Tolkien has been influenced by modern warfare, I think if you read The Lord of the Rings aware of that, I think you'll have more appreciation for, wow, he really speaks to the modern day. He speaks to our time. And I think that makes it the book even more even more engaging so that's that's what i would leave you on with the book <laughs> <laughs> well holly this has been such a great conversation and i've enjoyed it so much um yeah it's been great to like think about the lord of the rings and like tolkien and the christian roots and like realizing like there's a man behind this story and there's so much to him and like so much complexity it really impacts what you see when you like when you read the book or watch the movies or things like that um so yeah it's been super helpful thanks for that holly and um how can people like follow you, connect with you, things like that? Well, if you go to my website, which is very easy, it's hollyordway.com. You can find um, some details of my work there. And also you can find me on Facebook. Um, I have a Holly Ordway writer um, page where I post updates on my work. So I, I believe the, uh, the actual title for it is, um, well, it's Holly Ordway writer. <laughs> if you go and you look at <laughs> Facebook, you'll, you'll find me. Um, so I would encourage you to uh, connect with me on Facebook or um, look, look up my, uh, my website, hollyordway.com. Well, Holly, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Um, super grateful for you and your time. Uh, it's been super, super fun. Um, and I've learned a lot and I encourage everyone to check out your website and Facebook and all that fun stuff. And yeah, that's it. This is the here in apologetics. Uh, if you're new, I encourage you to subscribe, leave a like, 
um, all the fun stuff. I'd really appreciate your support. And if you value what we do, uh, go become a patron at patreon.com slash if you can can support for as little as a dollar a month. But Holly, that's it. Thank you so much for coming on today. It's been a pleasure. All right, my pleasure. Thank you, everyone, and God bless. We'll catch you next time.